Hello and welcome to the seventh series podcast, where we talk about Ashtanga yoga and family life. The show is produced in Melbourne, Australia, by me, your host, Gaynor Stanisic. Hi everyone, this is Gaynor. In today's episode, I interviewed Tanisha Walters. She lives in Cooper's Landing in Alaska. Tanisha and her husband, Zach, live with their two daughters, Kaya and Maya, in a home they built together. Tanisha is a traditional Chinese medicine and Japanese acupuncture practitioner and a yoga teacher. Tanisha shares how she used traditional Chinese medicines through her fertility journey to help flip her breech baby for induction in her second pregnancy and to support anemia. She also observed the period of sitting after her babies were born. Tanisha shares her experience of two fast home births, the second where her midwife only arrived after the birth of her daughter to deliver the placenta. Her recovery includes managing anemia and rectus diastasis. This is our last episode for season one. I'm hoping to take some time off over the next few months to spend time with my family. I'm hoping to drop a couple of bonus episodes, so make sure you subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher so that you can catch these when they come out. Thank you so much for all your support this year. This episode's a great one to end on, so I hope you enjoy. Hi, Tanisha. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for joining me. Are you able to share with us a little bit about yourself, where you live, who's in your family and what you do? Yes, I am originally from southern Mississippi in the southern part of the United States, and I currently live in um, a small little community called Cooper Landing, Alaska, um, with my husband, Zach, and our two children, Kaya, who is nine, and Maya, who is two, and she's about to turn three. I am licensed and nationally board certified as an acupuncturist and herbalist. I teach yoga to a small but dedicated little group here in our community. And I homeschool my older daughter. What's your connection with Ashtanga Yoga? I found the Ashtanga practice um, in 2010. And I like to say that I played around with yoga for quite some time before that. Did you have a particular teacher or someone that was very influential? In the beginning, before I found Ashtanga, it was mainly books and DVDs. I found the Ashtanga practice once uh, my husband and I moved to Isla Morada, Florida. There was a shala there. And like I said, I had played around with yoga for about eight years prior. And when I walked into that shala, at that moment, I knew there was something different about the shala, the teachers, and the practice itself. It had such a different energy than anything um, I had experienced previously. What shala was that? It was actually a KPJ shala in Isla Morada. I'm not really sure when it was built, but I know it was prior to Guruji passing. It was one of the shalas that when he came over here to the U.S., he went to that shala. It was uh, kind of built for that reason. It has it closed recently after I gave birth to my first daughter. So that was, uh, I think, in 2011, 2012 is when it closed down. What was it about Ashtanga Yoga that 
you were attracted to or what kept you going back? Well, like I said, originally it was when I walked into the shala. The shala itself had a different energy and the teachers had a different energy about them as well. The practice was just, it was wonderful. It was something different than I had ever experienced before. Like I said, I went to various classes. I actually practiced Bikram for about a year prior to as well, and nothing else really compared. And it, it's not something that I can really put into words or explain. It was more, like I said, it was more of the energy of it all. And I just knew at that point in time, there was something very different about it. My first teacher there was um, PJ Hefferman, and he was actually um, subbing for Stacy Lee, Stacy Lee Zimmet now, while she was in Mysore practicing. And that was my first experience. So I got to practice with him for um, a few months before Stacy came back. And then I got to practice under her guidance at that point in time until the shala closed. I love PJ. He really embodies yoga, but his personality really shines through as well, doesn't it? Oh, yes. And I think that was another thing. He he did. He had such a big personality. I guess, too, I had really never had an experience with that many men as far as like teachers in the actual studio, too. So that was a different energy as well. He was very opinionated and very comfortable in his self and what he had to say and confident. I really liked that a lot about him. What did your practice look like at that time? So at that point in time, we had just moved to the Keys um, and I started practicing at the Shala. PJ was there and I was practicing Ashtanga for a month before I became pregnant with Kaya. So I was very new to the Ashtanga practice um, when I did become pregnant. I had started off with the lead guided classes and as pretty much as soon as I became pregnant and um, I told PJ, he recommended that I come to the Mysore style classes so we could do the modifications necessary for pregnancy. At that point in time, my whole practice changed to more of the Mysore style self-guided practice. I felt like being pregnant during that time allowed me to approach the practice in a very aware and gentle manner, which I think um, sometimes in this practice, uh, that's something lacking. You said you were pregnant. Did you plan to start a family and get pregnant? How did that evolve? It was not planned exactly. My husband and I had been married for a few years. I had been on birth control for pretty much most of that time, except for the um, last four years prior. We were very cautious throughout that entire time. And then we decided, let's just see what happens. And it happened. <laughs> First go round. It wasn't necessarily quite planned. It was kind of more spur in the moment, but I think it was something that we both really wanted on a deeper level. You mentioned that you have, that you're a, is it traditional Chinese medicine or acupuncturist? Um, yes, same, same. Um, so acupuncture under the traditional Chinese medicine. 
I typically say acupuncture because I do practice a different style of acupuncture. I practice a Japanese um, style of acupuncture, which is the same thing. It just tends to be different techniques, a little bit different way of going about treatment. Did you sort of draw on your knowledge of traditional Chinese medicine to support you through your pregnancy? Definitely. Uh, I have to say that I think it played into me being able to become pregnant so easily on that first attempt. And throughout the pregnancy, I used it regularly for various things, um, nausea, fatigue, pain and discomforts, and just to support my body, my well-being, as well as you know, the child growing inside of me. So that was um, very much a part of my life prior to becoming pregnant and throughout the pregnancy. Are you able to share some of the principles of traditional Chinese medicine in terms of dietary choices and those sorts of things, like what sorts of things support pregnancy? Chinese medicine has uh, a lot of similarities um, with Ayurveda. Um, We have the elements We also have, um, you know, this whole concept of chi and prana, and then the vital substances like blood. So in pregnancy, we really want to support chi and blood. Doing so dietary-wise, you want a lot of spleen-nourishing foods, and that has a lot to do with cooked, warm foods, especially um, soups and broths, staying away from really cold foods and temperature and energetics. So ice cream (laughs) is kind of a, no, you can have it a little bit every once in a while. It's not something you want to have a lot of. Also, you know, people always think of raw vegetable salads as being super healthy. And in Chinese medicine, those raw foods like that tend to be spleen depleting. So it takes a lot more energy for your body to warm up the food to then process it as opposed to cooking your food before you ingest it. So those are really good basic concepts for nourishing chi. You also have certain foods that do that, more foods that are easier to digest, such as rice, uh, potatoes, carrots, anything orange or yellow. It's The spleen is related to the earth element in Chinese medicine. So pumpkin, squashes, those sorts of things. The other aspect is we really want to nourish blood as well during pregnancy. And Dietary-wise, you're talking about your iron and um, B vitamin-containing foods. So like your dark leafy greens, beets are another great blood source, go into um, animal protein type thing for nourishing blood as well. That's uh, another aspect of um, maintaining a healthy pregnancy is to be aware of keeping the blood volume up. And I think that was probably my, personally, my biggest challenge um, with both of my pregnancies was um, dealing with anemia. And are you a vegetarian as well? I'm a wannabe vegetarian. 
So there have been um, several times throughout my life where I have followed um, a strict vegetarian diet and I've ended up having uh, health issues every time I've done it. So as much as I want to, it hasn't really worked for me personally, not only in my pregnancy, but I've have had lifelong issues with anemia. So I take herbs, Chinese herbs, I take supplements, and then I, I do consume animal protein. We are very, very conscious about what we consume, especially here in Alaska. You know, my husband is a fishing guide, um, a fly fishing guide. So we do have salmon as part of our diet. And it's a big part of the local indigenous diet as well. Hopefully one of these days, I won't give up on <laughs> trying to become a full-time vegetarian. I think too, um, you know, nursing as well. I'm still nursing Maya and it does take a lot of chi and blood to produce breast milk. At this point in time, I'm still having to, I'm having to do a lot of that. So maybe, maybe once she stops nursing, um, we'll try to go full-fledged again. Tell us a little bit about your pregnancy then with your first. How was your pregnancy? Overall, it was a really, really good pregnancy. I supported it with acupuncture, herbs, and yoga throughout the pregnancy. I got regular massages. I ate well. It was a really healthy pregnancy. She was breech, though. So that would probably be the only complication at that point in time. And I did a technique, a traditional Chinese medicine technique called moxibustion. And I was able to get her to flip before I went into labor. So that was the only complication that we had going into that pregnancy. Other than that, everything was healthy. And again, my blood levels, my iron levels, my anemia was pretty borderline on that preg pregnancy. And one of the main things they look at, the reason that is such an important thing, especially when you're planning a home birth, is the risk of bleeding profusely and having severe blood loss. Uh, so I did notice um, during the labor of Kaya that since I was on that borderline anemic level, I did lose a whole lot of blood with her. But the pregnancy in itself was very, very healthy, a great pregnancy, just tired, a lot of fatigue. Were you still practicing Ashtanga through your pregnancy or did you sort of draw on some of the other styles of yoga that you'd been introduced to over your time? I stayed with the Ashtanga practice throughout the whole pregnancy. I was, like I said, I had PJ guiding me for the first little half and then Stacy came in and I was under her guidance for the rest of the pregnancy and she was really amazing. Um, I was very lucky and I feel very blessed and privileged to have had their guidance during that time. On days when I was really, really tired or that I couldn't make it into the shala, I did have this little prenatal yoga DVD that I would do. But it always left, uh, left me for wanting more. <laughs> it wasn't as challenging as I had liked, especially because that was one of the reasons I really liked the Ashtanga practice is because it challenged me in ways that I had never been challenged before with yoga. 
I almost think of it as being part of this like training, um, this like physical, mental, emotional, spiritual training for birth. What was your expectation of birth? Did you actually plan for a home birth? We did plan for a home birth. Being where we were at in Isla Mirada in the Florida Keys, we were about two hours away from a hospital where you could have a birth there. So it would be a two-hour drive to the hospital or a birthing center for that matter. So the options were basically home birth or drive for two hours for a hospital or a birth center. I had just graduated from acupuncture school at the time. I got pregnant in January and I had just graduated in August, just a few months prior to that. And during my schooling, I was very lucky. I had this wonderful teacher, Valerie Hobbs, who taught my OBGYN course, but she was also a midwife. So at that point in time, I got exposed to midwifery and natural births. I knew that for my pregnancy, my birth, I wanted a natural birth from everything I had learned. So that's when I started kind of exploring around. When I found out that I was going to have to drive two hours, the thought of doing a home birth started to come into play. I was actually would have never thought I would have done a home birth. It wasn't something in my radar. It just kind of is what happened because of the circumstances we were under. And I actually found this lovely little community of women in the Florida Keys who had done home birth or was planning on doing a home birth. So I felt supported in that decision and not like it was this crazy idea that a lot of friends and family thought it was. It actually seemed like a very reasonable idea. And I think what solidified it was after we met with my midwife for the first time, my husband and I, and just her energy and confidence and calmness really made us both feel at ease. And I was on board to begin with, but I think she kind of solidified it for my husband. And then another thing she had us do right at the beginning was as husband and wife, we watched together the documentary, The Business of Being Born. And uh, I highly recommend that to anyone. It's a pretty eye-opening documentary. And again, it, it's another thing that just kind of helped put us at ease with this decision to go about a home birth. Tell us a little bit about the end of your pregnancy and what were your first signs of labor? With my first child, with Kaya, I didn't have any signs of labor. I stood up from the couch. It was about 9.30 at night, and my water broke. We called the midwife. About 30 minutes later, I started having contractions, and then it proceeded from there. With my second daughter, I woke up at, I think it was about 2.45 in the morning to go to the bathroom to go pee. And when I did, I was bleeding. And so I knew it was starting at that point in time. And then contractions, you know, we went ahead and called the midwife. And then contractions started happening soon after that one. How did the rest of the labor proceed? At what point did your midwife come? 
So during my first pregnancy and labor and birth, like I said, my water broke around 930. My husband started filling up. We had a birthing tub there. So he started filling up the birthing tub with water. I had one of those exercise balls. So what I was doing was I was leaning over it, kind of moving with the contractions as he was filling up the tub. I remember it was intense. The first birth was really intense. Like I said, I I was losing a lot of blood. I remember that. I was throwing up a lot. Finally, he got the birthing tub filled up with water and I got in the birthing tub and that was really nice. I felt like the warm water and just the weightlessness of the tub really, really helped be able to relax a little bit, more so in between the contractions. Also, it had this birthing tub had these great little handles on the side that I was able to grab hold to during contractions and allow my body to move in whichever way it needed to. The labor progressed pretty quickly. The contractions got intense really, really quickly. And I remember putting my hand in between my legs and I could feel her head. And my midwife wasn't there yet (laughs) because she was driving from Miami, which was two hours away. And I remember screaming, she's coming, she's coming. And then the next thing I know, my midwife popped in the door (laughs) right at that moment and told me to push and out came Kaya, my first child. She had the cord wrapped around her neck. So my midwife unwrapped the cord, gave her a rescue breath, and then she put her on my chest and she started nursing immediately. It was just quite an amazing experience. And then it got a little scary after that. Um, She had a little bit of fluid on her lungs we could hear. So my midwife suctioned her and put her on a little oxygen. And she stayed there with us because I was so exhausted at this point in time. I think it was, let's see, 9.30, my water broke. 12.45, Kaya was born. And about 5 o'clock in the morning is finally when things were settled down. She was stable. And I was just so exhausted and I just needed to sleep for a little while. I felt like I never ran a marathon, but that's what I felt like I did after that. (laughs) And my midwife was just so beautiful. She stayed there and um, she let Kaya sleep on her chest while I slept for a few hours. And then she came and brought her back into me a few hours after that. And that was the beginning of that. It was a really good birth. I didn't have anything other than a little tear. And like I said, I had a lot of blood loss. So I had some anemia issues and some lightheadedness quite some time postpartum with her. Other than that, everything went really well. I think that's a question that when you've had a baby, you're unsure of. How do you know if you're losing too much blood? Because obviously after you've had a baby, like there's just blood. And it's like, at what point do you realize you're losing too much blood? Exactly. And I don't think I would have known, to be honest, unless I had the second child. And I realized, oh, it was so much less during my second child than the first. And that was really the only comparison because it's not like 
they, they're putting it in a measuring cup and measuring it. So it's really kind of hard. And then you're in the bathroom a lot too, you know, as you're in labor. So you have, yeah, it's hard to kind of gauge how much you're actually losing until you start to experience symptoms from the blood loss. So that was more, it was that you had symptoms like the lightheadedness and things like that? Yeah, I had like a couple times um, where I almost passed out. I remember actually one of the first times I went back to practice, I had to sit down. I almost passed out a few times. And then there were a couple instances where I would be bent over um, giving Kaya a bath and standing back up one time. Yeah, I pretty much, thank goodness, didn't hurt myself or her because I was holding her and I fell to the ground, which was kind of scary. Going back to the birth and even leading into the labor, did you use any of your acupuncture to help with the pain relief or to prepare you for labor? You know, the the induction. Uh The induction, not with Kaya, not with my first one. She came at 38 weeks. So I wasn't even attempting to do induction stuff. What I was um, working on with her was the breech presentation. So I used the moxibustion to help flip her along with some pelvic tilt and um, stuff like that as well. With my second daughter, though, with Maya, I was 41 weeks You cannot have a home birth here in Alaska if you go past 42 weeks. So I did an acupuncture induction with her and I went into labor the next, well, the early mornings following that. And so how many weeks were you when your daughter, your first daughter was still breech? Let's see. I think she was like 36 weeks when she was breech. I think by 37, I had um, we did an ultrasound check, and um, she had flipped at that point in time, and then she came at 38 weeks. Wow. It's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> you flip me around, I'll just come out now. <laughs> <laughs> Often they'll, they'll, they'll be breached until about 32 weeks, and um, around that time they'll sort of turn themselves down. So it sounds like she really was breached and, and got flipped. Yeah, yeah, she was definitely in the wrong position. And it it was very cool because I could feel her as she was flipping. There was, you know, subtle, slow movements and then a big movement. So that was also very interesting to be able to feel her do that inside of me. What was your recovery like after you had your first baby? After the first one, everything was so new at that point in time. As far as physical recovery, I only had a small tear, which healed up quite easily. It was a little bit longer after postpartum, I think, that I really started um, noticing other issues. I had the issue with anemia, and then I had some um, rectus diastasis as well with her that was pretty severe. I didn't catch that until quite a few months later. But other than that, postpartum, I feel like it was a very emotional time on all extremes. I also feel like with postpartum, with becoming a parent, there are a lot of things from our past and our childhood and our upbringing and that really come up as we transition into parenthood. At least it did for me. And I thought it might have just been a thing with 
the first pregnancy, but after birth of my second child, I realized that it does continue to pull up things um, even deeper, things that I guess we don't necessarily think about and unconsciously are still there that we're still holding in, really bringing to the surface. So there were a lot of emotional things associated with postpartum for me. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Like what sorts of things were sort of coming up for you? Was it your relationship with your partner or your relationship with your child? All of those. It is the relationship of coming into motherhood. The child part, that seemed very natural to me, that bond. That was not so much an issue. I see that it brought up things with me and my partner, specifically on differences that we had in how to go about raising a child. And, you know, that comes from our own individual experiences. And then for me, it also, it brought up a a lot of things with my relationship with my own parents. And I think that was um, one of the bigger issues for me. I started to see things of how they did things and how I'm doing things and the things I really liked that they did, the wonderful things they did, and then the, their shortcomings um, and how, you know, I want to learn from that and not make those same mistakes, starting to have empathy for my parents as well for some of their shortcomings as I coming into my own motherhood, my own circumstances and understanding their particular circumstances and where they were coming from at that point in time. But definitely more the relationship issues, like I said, with my husband on how to go about raising our child, coming to an understanding and a healing with my own parents. It's a big time, isn't it? Especially that first six months after you've had a baby. It's one of the toughest times in your relationship is that first six months of your child's life, just a combination of things and mm-hmm. that heightened anxiety because you're trying to take care of a child and you're learning them and learning how it all unfolds. And yeah, there's a lot going on. There is. I think we don't really talk about that too much in society. We do need to discuss and be a little bit more open with the struggles we go through. So we we all realize that we're not alone and that everyone faces these struggles in their own individual particular context. We all have them and it's not an easy job and none of us are perfect. Goodness, just trying to do the best we can. (laughs) Did you return to practice after having your first baby? I did. So after Kaya was born, I remember I'd asked PJ how long I should take off from practice? When could I start back? Because I was quite eager. I was still real new to the, you know, the whole Shanga method. So I was eager to get back to this amazing practice that I really felt helped me through this whole birthing process with my child. I went back to the Shala at six weeks postpartum. Um, I believe Stacy was back in my sore again. Um, at this point in time. So we had a guest teacher. I made the mistake of going into a lad class and that was just way, way too much postpartum. My body was definitely not ready for that. So I had to take a few steps back after that. And the shala closed shortly after 
I was kind of in this uh, weird limbo of postpartum trying to get back into my practice. Now, these amazing teachers I had that helped guide me through my pregnancy are gone, and I'm left with this practice and trying to relearn it postpartum. And so what I did was when the shala closed, I bought another DVD. And I was, it was the Sharat Lead Primary DVD. That is what I use to relearn the practice again. And that's what I used for quite some time before I started practicing with a Patrick Nolan at Miami Life. At some point in time, we started making drive up there, which was about two hours um, to go practice with him at least once a month. So that was uh, what I did until I was able to find a little bit of guidance again, just the self-practice at home with the DVD. And you mentioned that you had the rectus diastasis. What were your symptoms of that and how did you work on healing or did you actually get to heal it over time? Yes. So when I first found out about it, pretty much um, I was coming up from not a back bend. I wasn't practicing yoga. I was like just leaning over the back of a couch for some reason, stretching, I think. And I started to come up. And when I did, my guts protruded pretty much through that little space. You could see it. It was very strange looking and it freaked me out. I was like, oh my goodness, what is that? At the time, I was sharing an office space with a physical therapist. I was able to go in and I was like, oh my goodness, what is this? My guts were protruding out. Do I have this hernia or what is it? And um, she checked my abdomen and she was like, no, you have rectus diastasis. So she kind of told me all about it, um, told me about some different exercises and other things I could do there was the belly binding option. Um, I didn't really like that. It didn't feel right to me. I didn't like because my my ribs were, I felt like I couldn't breathe deeply with the belly binding. I just did exercises, basic stuff like pelvic tilts and, you know, your Kegel exercises and then just the yoga practice. Um, and I think the yoga practice itself is extremely healing for that if you approach things consciously and cautiously especially with, you know, just not overstretching is the big thing on that. It was pretty much five years postpartum, right when we decided to have our second child is when the rectus diastasis, I feel like, was completely healed. But because of it, I ended up having um, some pelvic floor prolapse later on. This was probably two years postpartum that this happened with my first child. Again, I was using acupuncture, herbs, and just my yoga practice. And by the time I became pregnant with uh, Maya, it had healed itself again. And then we come back to after... We had healed finally, got pregnant again. And so I'm dealing with the same issues now. The rectus diastasis has pretty much already healed up completely, which is a lot quicker than it did on my first pregnancy. And I still have um, a little bit of the pelvic floor prolapse. But again, it's healing up quicker than it did the first time around too. 
I think just having more knowledge of what I'm dealing with, knowing which herbs to use, and knowing my practice more, knowing my body better, knowing what to do and what not to do this time around, I think just really helped a lot as far as the postpartum recovery. When did you decide to have another baby and was that something that was planned as well? Well, Maya, we decided to have her on um, our second trip to Mysore. We were in India and Mysore. My husband, after our first child, both of us, I think, decided we were just going to be a one-child family. We didn't want another child. And it was at that point in time when we were in India practicing that he came up to me and told me that he wanted us to have another child. And I was like, hmm, okay. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm on board with this. And uh, he wanted to start trying immediately. And I was like, uh, no, <laughs> we are in Mysore. This is my time to actually dedicate to my practice because most of the time my home practice is with children. Um, so to be able to just go to the shala and dedicate it solely to myself, it was really nice. Um, so I told him, no, we're not going to start right then. We did decide to have her at that point in time. As soon as we got back from Mysore, we got pregnant within the first month. That was, that was kind of that, again, um, the first try. So we were very lucky in that. Sounds like you had a little bit more experience in Ashtanga by that point. So did you take the first trimester off and what did your pregnancy look like with your second? I did not take the first trimester off. I practiced through the first trimester on both pregnancies, but immediately changes to the practice. So, you know, feet spread apart, no twisting, no abdominal pressure or hardening. I was much more, I think, in my first pregnancy, it was very interesting because the practice was very new. I never had to let anything go. I was actually learning things. I learned how to do shashasana for the first time pregnant. I learned how to do drop backs for the first time while pregnant. And then in my second pregnancy, it was different. Um, I was learning to let go of a lot of things. You know, a lot of the deeper back bending I didn't do in my second pregnancy. It didn't feel right. I let go of kapitasana immediately. I did not do drop backs throughout my second pregnancy where I did in the first. There are a lot of other things I left out in the second pregnancy. I had a little bit of pelvic floor discomfort. Um, so, you know, Utita Hasta um, did not feel right during my second pregnancy pregnancy. So I let that one go. And with both of them, I think just a great awareness of the breath, because it's the most important part of the practice and the most important tool to use during labor and birth and parenting. Having had the history of the, the abdominal separation, did you approach were you hyperconscious of that in your upward dogs and any backbending when you were practicing? When I was pregnant, I was aware of it. I didn't stop doing any of those things. Now, on the second time, the second pregnancy, postpartum is where I really changed that because I did have an umbilical hernia as well with the second pregnancy. So I was super aware postpartum of 
any type of back bending. I was not even really doing a full up dog. I was pretty much skipping any type of back bending, you know, abdominal stretching type of stuff at that point in time. But like I said, it was a different situation than the first time around because I did have, I knew that I had this umbilical hernia. And um, I do feel like letting go of that for such a long time, I think it was probably eight months postpartum when I started adding those back in. I think allowing that time for the rectus diastasis and the hernia to heal without doing the back bending really, really helped the rectus diastasis the first time around. It took quite some time for it to heal. Now it's almost completely gone and I'm not, and she's not even three. Whereas last time around, it was about five years before that completely closed up. What was your expectation with your second birth? Were you planning a home birth again? I was planning a home birth again. This time we're in Alaska, different place, kind of same situation. We are about an hour and 15 minutes to two hours to the closest hospital, depending on which way you go, our birthing center, for that matter of fact, to have a child. So you have those long driving options or a home birth. I loved my home birth first time around, and it's what I wanted to do again. We found a midwife and decided to go that route again. It was very much a different situation for us. We had been seasonal, back and forth, moving between Alaska and the Florida Keys for about four years. When we decided to make Alaska our permanent home, and I got pregnant with our second child. In a small rural community up here, housing is not that easy. And so a lot of places are dry cabins with outhouses. We decided it was time for us to make our home here. So we bought a piece of land from the Kenai Peninsula Borough, just a raw piece of land. My husband, with a little bit of help, cleared the land and started building our home, which we have built all on our own. And to prepare for the home birth here, we had barely had water and septic at the time. It was very primitive. Our house is two stories, but we only had the bottom with basically a makeshift temporary plastic roof. We had a wood-burning stove to keep us warm, but we had the basic necessities for this home birth. And I feel like I knew this is what I wanted and I was going to make it happen as much as in my power that I could. So I was going to use all the tools that I had and the knowledge I had to be able to do that. How did the birth unfold? Was it similar to your first? A little bit different, but there were some similarities, especially with the quickness of the birth. So with my first birth, the midwife barely made it. The second birth, um, she didn't make it in time. So I woke up around 2.45 to go urinate, and I was bleeding at that point in time. I had my husband call the midwife and let her know. Contractions started soon after. I remember my husband sitting there drinking a cup of coffee as he's filling up the birthing tub. Contractions started to get intense pretty quickly. 
And I had my yoga mat out on the floor and I was on my hands and knees and just kind of breathing with the contractions on my hands and knees. And then my water broke and I realized, oh, I still have my underwear on. (laughs) So from the hands and knees position, I stepped my right foot forward to take my underwear off and I had barely just got it off and she came flying out. My husband barely caught her. She was quite slippery. (laughs) So he kind of fumbled her a little bit, but he caught her right there on the mat. Um, She was still attached to the placenta that was inside of me. I held her. Um, She started nursing. My husband finished filling up the birthing tub because I wanted to be in there. I just wanted to feel the warmth of the water and the buoyancy. That's also where I delivered her placenta. The midwife made it there probably, I think it was 45 minutes after she was born. The midwife came and uh, just in time for me to deliver the placenta. The placenta was uh, still kind of attached. So she had to do a little bit of tugging on it. And I think that um, exasperated some of that um, pelvic floor prolapse that I had talked about. Went ahead and delivered the placenta. She cleaned everything up. It was one of the most precious, beautiful moments in just the still darkness that she was born. And it was just me and my husband. Our older daughter was sleeping just feet away. And we woke her up to her baby sister. It was absolutely beautiful. That does sound really beautiful. And to be in that setting as well, like it's almost like you went back in time. This is such a natural and earthly kind of birth. It was. And, you know, I had it in my head, to be honest, that that's the birth I wanted with her. I wanted that intimate, just us birth. I had it in my mind. I remember in the previous pregnancy, there was a lot of fear of being alone for the birth, especially because my husband was gone for four months out of the pregnancy for my first pregnancy. He was up here in Alaska and I was down in the Florida Keys. So one of my biggest fears was birthing alone and not having him there. And I remember I did this prenatal class called Birthing from Within. And there's a book called Birthing from Within as well. And one of the stories in that book was about this woman who birthed alone. And it sounded so powerful and so magical and so beautiful. And it really just brought me um, at ease about the whole What if he doesn't make it back from Alaska in time? What if I have to birth alone? And I had made peace with that and I was okay with it. And I feel like that really carried over into the second pregnancy and second birth as well, that I I felt empowered to be able to do that. And then a lot of it is you do what you can do. You use all your tools. And then there's just a huge component of just letting it go and letting it be whatever it's going to be. Did you, 
after your births and your postpartum, did you observe the first 40 days or do any placenta encapsulation or utilize the placenta in accordance with the traditional Chinese medicine approaches? Yes, I actually, in both of my pregnancy, I did the month of sitting, um, as we refer to it as in Chinese medicine. In Chinese medicine, postpartum for the first month, it's recommended that the woman just basically nurses and takes care of her child. And someone else helps cook and clean and this and that. So during my first pregnancy, I had the accessibility to have a postpartum doula, which was really nice, who helped with all of that stuff. You know, she'd cook a meal or prepare a plate of food for me and bring it over and help me with the laundry and stuff like that. And then my husband was actually very, very helpful in my second pregnancy for me to be able to honor that 30 days of sitting (laughs) or just, you know, taking care of yourself and activity. Um, As far as the placental capsulation, I did um, do placental encapsulation with my first pregnancy. It was really nice because my midwife just took the placenta with her and dropped it off at this other lady who did the whole encapsulation process for me, which, because I don't think I would have been able to do that process with everything else that was going on postpartum, you know, a new baby. So that was a really nice service to offer. And I did take all of those. I do feel like they helped. With my second pregnancy, I did not do the placental encapsulation. And it's really only because I didn't have that same availability of the services that I had when we were living in the Florida Keys. I didn't have anyone to encapsulate it for me. So it would be a process that I would have had to do on my own. And our little primitive housing setup that wasn't really an option at the time. However, I do still have her placenta sitting in my freezer right now. And we have the intention this spring that we will plant her placenta with the tree here at our home. And so how did you find going from having one to two children? Well, it doesn't get any easier at all having two. Part of the biggest is Kaya was a little bit older. You know, there is a six-year age gap, right? between the two of them. Um, So I think that was one of the biggest adjustments, especially for her, as much as she loved her little baby sister, for the first time she's having to share mom and dad's attention. I think that's probably was and still is one of the biggest things because she still talks about that. Well, before Maya was born, I had all of your attention. That's been an adjustment. Other than that, I think When you have multiples, you realize that you did have a lot more downtime (laughs) when you just had one, because when you have more than one, when that one isn't requiring attention, usually the other one is. So I think those probably have been the biggest adjustments for us. So how do you find now the balance of work and practice and then the family life? You know, we have this nice little slow balance here in Alaska that I really love. And it's different than when we're in the Florida Keys that after my first child, I went back to work full time three months postpartum. 
And that was hard. I was, you know, I was still nursing. I was pumping. I was working full time. It was um, very depleting and really hard to do. This time around has been very different. I have this nice little clinic here on our property that my husband built. So my work is literally across the driveway. We live in a small community, so my patient load is a lot less than what it was in the Florida Keys. I had a pretty busy community-style acupuncture practice in the Florida Keys, whereas here it's just a slower pace. We have a smaller community, so a slower pace. And it fits really nicely because of COVID. We're not currently um, doing our little community classes, but we also have yoga that I teach at our little community center a few days a week. And the kids come with us there. We have this really nice balance, I feel like, that we've been able to create since my husband and I both are entrepreneurs. We both own our own businesses. We're able to be more flexible with our jobs. You know, we make sure that our practice is consistent. We make sure that our children know why we practice. We try to keep them involved as much as possible without forcing. And so I think it's just been this thing that throughout the years we've We've been all over the place, but I feel right now at this point in time, we have just a really nice balance between our family life, between practice and between work. And my last question, what's your approach to your practice now or what does your practice look like now? It depends on the day. <laughs> I've, uh, I've pretty much been a home practitioner for the most part throughout my entire yoga journey. So the children and the family life are, like I said, a big part of the practice. They're here while I'm practicing every day because my little one, as soon as I get out of bed, she's going to wake up (laughs) no matter how early I get up. So I've just come to the realization that that's how it's going to be and it's fine. I try to uh, get them set up with either food or an activity or something like that, or try to get them to practice with us. Some days it's just getting on the mat and doing, you know, a couple Suranamaskars and calling it a day. And then some days it's a two, two and a half hour practice. It just really kind of depends on what's going on that day, but we do keep it consistent. One of the beautiful things that have come out of this uh, whole pandemic that we're going through right now is we have the accessibility to teachers again. And I haven't had that um, in so long without having to really make efforts to travel long distances. So, you know, we get to practice with Sharat via Zoom. And I've been able to actually progress my practice I've finally have uh, been able to learn all of the asanas of the intermediate series via Zoom. Um, you know, Ty Landrum has been um, offering, and so many wonderful teachers have been offering uh, different online classes and stuff. And I just find that so wonderful that during this time, that something so great like that can come about from it. 
I don't think this would have happened if it wasn't for the pandemic. I don't see Girat ever doing an online class if it wasn't for the circumstances. It's been quite a blessing for us to have that accessibility and connection again with a teacher because it does get lonely sometimes doing your home practice, even though I have my family here and we do have our little yoga community here that we've started. You, you miss having um, that guidance and that connection. It's been really nice. And as far as the practice, we just, like I said, we take it day by day. Every day is going to be different. I don't have any intentions, really, when I get on the mat. I just get on there and do what I can do. And it's usually extremely interrupted <laughs> between, you know, my daughters or the dog coming over on the mat. I've come to have a great appreciation for that as well. There was a point in time in my life where especially after my uh, first daughter and trying to get back into this practice that I had just found and fell in love with and connected with. And it was so hard um, being, I wanted to be able to do the full practice every time. And I had to let go of that postpartum with her. And there was a lot of frustration at that point in time. You know, looking back now, I'm like, gosh, I, I wish I wouldn't have let it get to me so much. But I do feel like it was just part of the process, part of the learning process and the adjustment process. Now I've just kind of come to terms with it. And this is this is how I practice. This is my life. I'll do a few asanas and then I might have to go, you know, get a snack or <laughs> go wipe a butt or something like that. And it's all okay as long as I'm getting to the mat for my own well-being because of how I relate and interact with my relationships and with my children, it's necessary. I want my daughters to know why it's necessary for me and why this practice is so important to me and what a great tool it is. Oh, you know, if everyone could learn some type of yoga, some type of breathing, some type of to be able to channel their energy and their emotions when they're young and to be able to find calmness in the chaos is just such a wonderful thing that I want my children to understand and to have access to these tools. I do see it. I see my older daughter. She'll get mad sometimes and I see her go off and take some deep breaths and I, I see her sit in Padmasana and it makes me smile. And I see my younger daughter imitating us on the yoga mat and she'll imitate chanting. She does her little Om Shanti chant. It just really makes me happy that regardless of what they do with it, that I have planted those seeds and hopefully given them some tools to really help them throughout their lifetime. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us today. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? I have a website. It's TanishaWalters.com. I am also on Facebook as Tanisha Walters Acupuncturist. And I am on Instagram as well at Tanisha Walters. So those are the best ways to contact me. 
Thank you again. It's been great chatting to you. Thank you so much for having me and for doing this podcast. I think it's very beneficial for many parents and practitioners of yoga. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the seventh series, our last one for the season. If you're new to the series, take the time to listen to some more of the stories. Please subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes or some of the bonus episodes when they're released. And please help us to reach more people by going to Apple Podcasts to rate and definitely leave a few words and a review. You can connect with me or share episodes on Facebook and Instagram and find out more information on the show or our guests at seventhseries.net. Please tune in for season two of the Seventh Series podcast. Thanks so much again for your support this year.